At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back. Here we are at So Very Wrong About Games. It is a board gaming podcast about, you know it, board games. My name is Michael Walker. I'm here with my good friend and co-host, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. Thank you. How are you? Fantastic. You keep saying welcome back, and I just want listeners to understand, that's because we've adopted the editorial policy of waiting in the studio the entire week between episodes. I'm beginning to question the legitimacy and the necessity of this practice. Well, it's not too... Before it was like about the fourth day, staring into each other's eyes got a little bit awkward. But yeah. I'm I'm getting coming back around again. You know, it's sort of like I don't mind the staring into the eyes. It's just the refusal to look away as I poop. <laughs> so first, we're going to talk about <laughs> the games we played this week. Award-winning podcast. Then, ladies and gentlemen, remember that as you submit your complaints. Then we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and then. We're going to talk about our number one reviewed game of of no. this week. <laughs> then we're going. To, then we're going to talk about our main review this week, the which futurist is of feature games, Voidfall. I looked it up. We have reviewed every Mind Clash major release uh, through crowdfunding. We have not done a feature game of some of the the, the minor stuff that they've done independently. That they've recently, you know, Astra, Astra and yes, uh, Septima is hitting retail soon, and we'll be playing. But anyway, so Walker. What did you play last week? Mark, I got to play Great Western Trail New Zealand. This is designed by Alexander Pfister and put out by Eggerspiel. And it's just yet another iteration on Great Western Trail, which is bringing a herd of animals to to slaughter or to the to the to shipping. Incomplete defiance of history and geography. And I'm glad to see that Fister's insistence on doing historical themes has continued with the published product being radically at odds with any truth or facts observable in the world. Why facts are or overrated. Yes, for Fister, they're merely a state of mind. <laughs> so this time it's sheep, Mark. We're bringing sheep. And the, the, the hooks in this one are you can now sell their wool on the way to uh to the slaughterhouse before you you send them all off and so that gives you a whole bunch more money so there's a lot more resources floating around this game it's it's leaned very hard into the deck building there's all sorts of cards on the side that you're going to be adding to your 
to your herd deck and you're going to say, well, Mike, that's just going to bloat your deck and make it impossible to get a decent herd. Walker, that's just going to bloat your deck. No, Mark, that's not how it works. All of these extra cards have an icon, which means draw. So you just play them, draw another card. You cycle through these cards, you get all their benefits and they do nothing to like, but for bloating your deck. So it's just pure upside. You want to buy as many of these as possible. Just so. I see. And to do that, there's a new resource called gold. You just get it in different places and you can trade that in. There's all sorts of, you know, what the new bandit tokens are. Some of them give you cards. It's all different ways to get all these different cards in the game. And I find it very interesting. They It sort of comes with the the expansion already in the, for Great Western Trail, you know, the top where you, you know, go through all the different towns and you start putting out little houses. Made the rail progress far more elaborate. True. This one is now you're you're a boat and you're going through all these different islands around New Zealand and you're you same sort of thing. You're but it just seems to flow a lot better in this particular game. Ha! The boats they flow just so. And uh, the the side uh, the side sort of thing where you get your employees and things is a little bit different. The employees all line up in the same rows and they get cheaper the more there are of them. I remember and that there were cowboys, engineers, and builders. Same same principle here? Same principle. Yeah. You have your shepherds and your sailors and your people that build and your shears. This time you have shears because when you bring the sheep in the sheep in to get sheared, you have you can only do one sheep per shear you have. Ah, I see. So you need more shears. But that has nothing to do with the to- the turn limit like it did in the old game. The turn limit has to do with these bonus tokens that you can buy that give you all sorts of different things, and that pushes down the token as per usual. The so, turn token that, that determines yeah, the overall length of the game. So. I see. You had commented when I asked about it earlier in the week that this is possibly your preferred version of Great Western Trail, which is high praise because you're a, you're a pretty big Great Western Trail fan. My understanding was that the second iteration you enjoyed as a variant, but you didn't like as much as the first. Correct. And so far it's early days yet, but New Zealand may be your favorite of the lot. I think so. I've only played it the once, but I like how that they've sort of cleaned up, you know, bringing the sheep in at the end. Now there's only like uh, two stages instead of like three A's and three B's. Right. Now there's only two. So that goes through there much faster. The deck cycling is nice because, you know, just because if you know Great Western Trail, you want to have the best hand when you get there. So this all helps. And it just seems more interesting. They seem it's, to streamline it a lot better. And Between the new card effects and the prevalence of money, it seems like it's a lot more forgiving than the original Great Western Trail. I remember that one of the things in Great Western Trail, and this is merely a matter of taste, you know, those effects that allow you to, say, discard a card from your hand to get money. It was often less about money and more just any ability to modify what was in your hand was a great boon. And so if this was a cow that wasn't really contributing to a good good haul for when you, you know, deliver cattle to Kansas City, because that's how cattle driving worked. <clears throat> anyway, moving on. Uh, so you, what, what I'm hearing is that there's a lot more latitude in New Zealand based on your impressions. Agreed. Interesting. One thing that does inspire a great deal of curiosity, because I like Great Western Trail a fair bit. I'm very curious about this iteration is very frequently when you have, you know, a base game with some problems and then an expansion that fixes the problems but then renders the experience perhaps a touch more cumbersome than is ideal, often it is that second edition or that re-evaluation or that re-edition that finally brings in together all those good bits in a cleaner package. And if New Zealand can deliver on that promise, then I... Uh, 
it sounds like I might share your, your, your impressions. I hope so. They do clean up a lot, but then they add a whole bunch with all these extra cards. So we'll see what you think. I'm definitely eager to play it again. All right. That is Great Western Trail, New Zealand by Alexander Pfister, published this year by Eggert Spiel. I played another game of Flick Fleet Xeno Wars. I decided to try some solo monkeying around. It's very solo friendly in that it's mostly just practicing your dexterity shots and you get to test out different fleet builds because Flick Fleet Xeno Wars really is sort of a hybrid between dexterity and miniatures gameplay. And I was very unsatisfied with my use of some of the big queen ships from the Hive, which is one of the two new alien factions. Queen ships are these very physically large pieces that spawn a great deal of fighter waves with great speed. But in my first game against Walker with them, I really feel like I didn't use them well. And so I didn't, you know, it, it ended up making me feel like I hadn't really seen what the ships had to offer. I have to agree that they have this sort of parasite uh, mechanism. And I'm wondering if you got that to sort of click in your game. I did. It was strange, though, by virtue of the fact that they lead to ship destruction in a different way because... They will strip systems of their discs, making the systems inoperable, but they won't destroy a ship by themselves. Unlike, say, the oars, which is the paradigmatic example of shipboarding in the science fiction context, you either know or you don't, you're either a happy camper or you're not, and if you're not a happy camper, then sometimes that leads to the dancing. But at any rate, so parasites will not destroy a ship, and that is one of the reasons why you need those fighter waves. They're the ones that can finish a ship off. Uh, if you load up another capital ship with tons of parasites, it makes them unable to do much, but it's not going to finish the job. I didn't really encounter that much. I did get a couple of parasites in, and they did a lot of work. You know, it, it leads to a real difficult decision on the part of the victim ship, because in order to get rid of these parasites that are doing damage over time, you have to lose one of your two actions. But if the parasite has already been damaging systems, well, one of your actions gets rid of the parasites, then what? You spend your second action just to repair and end up doing nothing? Or do you activate a system suboptimally? But again, those are the kind of trade-offs that I really like in Flick Fleet, and part of the ship management aspect that makes me endlessly curious about new science fiction large ship-based games. That's one of the reasons why I'm pledged for Acheron's Fall on GameFound, even though I really shouldn't be. And I in, I got to see the Queen's work a little bit better this time, and so I kind of see their appeal. And I definitely doubled down on my impression that in Flick Fleet, whether it's Xeno Wars or any other set... <laughs> If you find a scenario that really sparks your imagination and you look at it and say, I really want to try out that situation, by all means, go for it. I've played one scenario that was really quite cool. It had a, uh, the, the ships were, were orbiting a gravity well. And so at the end of every round, every ship moved a certain space towards the center. And if it reached the center, it would just get destroyed. And that put some interesting pressure on movement and some interesting effects on the overall state of the table. That having been said, the actual fleet composition, I don't think necessarily has to be married to the specific fleet composition there. I really think the way to go in terms of being able to play with ships and have enough units so that you feel like you're doing some interesting stuff is to just use point values and to err, if anything, a little bit on the high end as opposed to how much they recommend. Because I keep talking about how Flick Fleet is a niche product and it's very, very expensive, but I understand why it's expensive. You do get a fair bit in the box in terms of ship variety. And so, by all means, let people play with more ships. It's still going to be a very, very, very fast game. Unless, of course, you can't hit the broadside of the barn. Maybe all my games are fast because I play against Walker. He loads up with nukes, and he just blasts me out of the sky real quick. Anyway. I'm wondering with this gravity well, because we talked about when you can you can ram ships. Like, if you're about yes. to be destroyed, you can use your ship as a ram and and, and come in. But if you're not ramming, you can still collide with the other ships, but it does nothing. Correct. 
Now, do you reset the position of the ships to anywhere? Because I'm wondering if the gravity well, if, if a strategy would be to knock the other player's ship towards the gravity well. Well, you can definitely uh, force them either through shots or through aggressive maneuvering to f make them waste time on movement that they wouldn't do otherwise. As far as the specifics of... Ram uh, I'm, I'm a little bit confused because every time I play, I have to recheck the ramming rules, in part because I never fully internalized them. It's one of the thorniest rules issue in a very, 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 very simple game. And they've also changed the ramming rules in Xenowars, which, by the way, these are backported rules they recommend. And they do seem cleaner, but now I'm just confused. Right? <laughs> you can make... Uh, somewhat slightly messy rules a lot cleaner, and that's probably for the best, but now I'm in a state where I don't remember either rule set, and I might be accidentally importing bits from one to yeah. the other. You need to mesh them together, combine them around. Yeah, exactly. Make a new bespoke wrong rule set every time. It's not a huge deal. It's just every time I sit down to play, it is the one thing I have to remind myself of. This is how ramming works. Anyway, I had a great time with Flick Fleet. I love I love experimenting with the toys in exactly the same way that I like experimenting with toys in tabletop miniatures games and finding out how different builds work and exploring the the play space in that way. And I have to say that when you you know you compare it to other dexterity games, it might seem a little pricey, but when you compare it to other miniatures games, whew, it's a bargain. <laughs> so I'm actually going to be buying more Flick Fleet going forward. I don't know if I'm going to be pursuing the uh, full-on the prospect of buying acrylic sheets and having them printed out with the STL files that they will sell you very, very inexpensively on the Eurydice Games website, or if I'm actually going to bite the bullet and try to get the you know fully etched deluxe version that is uh, very, very pricey. Uh, I'm not really sure yet, but anyway, I'm very glad to have the Flick Fleet that I have. I would like to get more Flick Fleet. I'm not exactly sure how that's going to be, but I consistently find new and interesting corners of the game space to explore, and that's a wonderful thing to find. That is Flick Fleet Xeno Wars, designed by Jackson Pope and Paul Wilcox, put up by Eurydice Games. It is the fourth box set of Flick Fleet and an expand alone that introduced the alien factions. I highly recommend starting with the, with the original base starter if if you were inclined, a splendid experience. I got to play a game called The White Castle. This is put out by Devier Games and the same designers as Red Cathedral, which are Isra C and Shili S. Yes, these are the uh, pseudonyms of Israel Sendrero and Sheila Santos. And comes in the same size box and... You literally have to like organize it right from the punching it out in order to get it to fit. <laughs> One of those, huh? So it's the same size as Red Cathedral, nice and small, tons of game in a little box. It is definitely a knife fight in a foam booth. You have nine turns for the whole game. And what you're doing is you're, you're, uh, placing dice so there's these dice on these nice bridges and you're either taking the one on the right or the left and they're sorted by you know low to high if you take the lowest die then you get to run part of your engine and if you take the high die then you don't have to, then you actually get some money because all of the action spaces you're going to use for these dice have sort of like a pre-roll printed on them or you can place it on top of dice that are already there if it's higher than the die you get money if it's lower than the die you have to pay money and then you're just trying to get the most out of those nine turns. You're trying to get these 15 uh, people, courtesans and gardeners and soldiers out on the board because you have uh, things you can run on your own board as well. And when you do some action, it lets you take cards from the board and upgrade your own board. But then 
The interesting part is that as soon as you take that card, a new card replaces it. So you might be helping the next person because now they can take actions there. Is that interesting or just unfortunate? I, I think it's interesting because okay. there was a couple times during our game that I just, I bet on it. It's like, okay, well, the action I need is not there. I see. But there are two other people coming. I'm not even going to bother, you know, planning out my turn. And sure enough, uh, Sidewinder took a turn. Uh, it's the courtesans moving up in the castle lets you take the card where they finish. And when the new card was revealed, it had the action that I needed. Very nice. And so I think it's very enjoyable. And, and the fact that you can bring that action down into your board so you'll know you'll have it for next turn as well. All that kind of thing. Very interesting. I'm very much hoping that you can get it, get it tried out because I want to play it again. Lots of things going on. Nine turns, lots of game in a little package. How long did the game take? Very short. Mm. So, it, so it's one of those things where you have a small number of actions and that's really reflected in the playtime. Yeah, it's, it was very much like Red Cathedral as well. In in, in the case that, because I read a bit of a bunch of it as well, like the first game, you're going to get about 40 points, then you're going to get 60, then you're, you know, it's, it's one of these things where once you learn how, right. how the mechanisms, where you're gonna, your score is going to increase exponentially. I see. So... I'm looking forward to trying it again. Well, I mean, it's got a good pedigree. You know, Devere has, has been putting out reliably good games, and uh, Sendrero and Santos, uh, I was I was impressed by Red Cathedral. Not as much as you were, but it was very pleasant. Interesting to see they, they're uh, sticking with dice manipulation. Yeah, and it looks fantastic, too. It really reflects the sort of period. I don't know what to say. It's about Himeji Castle, isn't it? It is. I see. Well, then. Is it actually about a castle? Because Red Cathedral wasn't really about a cathedral. No. Okay. It's about optimizing those nine actions the best you can. <laughs> I fell for it. <laughs> that is the way Castle in different games. I played a game called Forgotten Depths. This is by Peter Albertson and Void Knight Games, fulfilled last year after successful crowdfunding. This is a co-op exploration kind of dungeon crawly thing with a very uh, minor emphasis on combat as compared to other games. Forgotten Depths is interesting in that, uh, first of all, the art style is very pleasant. It's it's sort of a John Howe-esque kind of watercolor, faded, but very compelling line art uh, sort of style with an all-female cast. And it is about exploring... Uh, these huge cavernous uh, uh, relics uh, of, of past civilizations with these towering cyclopean statues that nobody knows what they do anymore and delving to find resources in a kind of sort of vaguely post-apocalyptic... Anyway, the setting is, is, is interesting and I think it's well communicated by the art style. And what it seeks to do is a fusion between a uh, card-driven combat style and cooperative tiling to explore the dungeon. The way that it works is you pull tiles from this deck of square cards, and as you make certain patterns in the dungeon that allows you to trigger various kinds of encounters which are favorable to you. But you cannot explore or access areas of the dungeon if they are behind, say, a monster. And so eventually you're forced to combat monsters to get to the thing behind them that you really wanted to get to, whether it's the boss, whether it's that neat feature you just unlocked, or whether it's just to open up the map in general. Because one of the loss conditions is if you pull a tile that you cannot place such that it is accessible to the party, you immediately lose. And so sometimes like, eh, we're getting to a risky part here. We need to kill a monster so we can go forward. The combat is, I'm going to say... Not entirely without choices. <laughs> it's enjoyable, but mostly what you're doing is just popping cards and seeing what happens. 
there's some interesting management aspects that kind of make up for substantive decision-making. It gives you kind of the illusion of control, but I wouldn't say that it's replete with solid decision-making. And for what it's worth, this is more or less exactly what we were looking for. Basically, the person I was playing with, Dr. Contra, came to me and said, I want to do a sort of fantasy adventure thing uh, that is not like hyper grimdark and not entirely about fighting. I'm like, Sure, shouldn't be a problem. Wait, what do I have that answers to that criterion? <laughs> I realized, you know, it's like, well, you know, Tainted Grail is super dark. Doom Rock is super dark. Uh, ooh. <laughs> and most of them are all about combat. Oh, Forgotten Depths. I still haven't tried that one. <laughs> I, 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 I pledged on that at Kickstarter. Talked about it on Pledge of Indifference. And sure enough, it was more or less exactly what the Doctor ordered. It was okay. We, we don't really feel the need to go back to this level of the dungeon. There are three levels of the dungeon there's a certain amount of replayability level by level, but not too, too much. We might eventually go to the second level. Maybe. I'm not sure. We're not, we don't have a burning desire to go back to it. It was pleasant. And it was, we were more or less interested in a light decision-making pleasant kind of rompish thing. Yeah. And you're happy that it fulfilled what you were looking Precisely. for. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. uh, that having been said, it wasn't terribly remarkable in any of its aspects. It was just, it fulfilled the specific mood and vibe that we wanted. So that was Forgotten Depths by Peter Albertson and Void Knight Games. Occasionally with some decisions. The Honestly, I, the, the part I enjoyed most was the cooperative tiling. Just setting out the dungeon in such a way and having various trade-offs. Like, Ooh, we want to make that shape because we want to go do the thing and see what it is. And sure enough, then you go see what it is. And you get to see a nice picture and a little bit of pretty standard dungeon-delving stuff. It's like, hey, there's this statue. Hey, there's this suit of armor. Hey, there's this whatever. But the art really sells the experience. And so... That was Forgotten Depths. You were nice enough to introduce me to Omicron Protocol. This is by Dead Alive Games, and a lot of it was a review copy that they were sent nice enough to send to us. This is done by Brendan Kendrick and Bernie Lynn, and it is a two-player skirmish game. And it does a lot of things right. Things they do right is just make movement automatic. You know, you're not paying action points. You're not worrying about, you know, giving anything up just so you can move around the map. Fantastic. It makes uh, line of sight very simple as well. So you're not worried about that. It gets you into the game very quickly. You pick your, you know, your four units that you want to play with and you're on the board. Some things that the, I do want to go back to, some things that are a little rough, especially on first play, that is all four of these characters sometimes have two or three special abilities each. Ooh, and, more than that, I think. <laughs> more like four to six, Four I to think. six. And then trying to keep all of that tracked, you know, for the first play, plus all the rules, plus the fact that, unfortunately, not unfortunately, sometimes interestingly, sometimes in the way, there's all these zombies all over the place. And depending on how much noise you make, they're going to attack you. They spawn more. So, so it's sort of a common enemy on the board while you're trying to get these objectives. Just to be clear, they're not actually zombies. No. They're, uh, they, they're called cybermimetic sociopaths. This is a post-apocalyptic game where uh, in the near future, everyone has cybernetic augmentation and something unexplained happens that causes most of the population with such augments to start behaving in incredibly violent and erratic ways. Just just to be clear. Yeah, and so it's bad by the fact that you have to constantly upkeep all of this, but it's good in a way that it, it, it gives you more opportunities to 
complete the missions. It's not all about just taking down the enemy. There's, you know, there's the mission objectives, there's killing the out-of-control humans, and then there's also trying to kill your opponent as well. I quite like the way The Sims work. I agree with you that it's... uh a certain amount of yeah. Upkeep. I'm not saying I'm not saying that the, it's complicated right. or hard. It's just the fact that it's every round. You know, the primary thing that I appreciate about it is that it is grist for a lot of interesting abilities, and in it on top of the standard tactical considerations, like well, I don't want to end up next to this large crowd of Sims that will tear me limb from limb. But it also allows you to have characters that are not focused on combat abilities at all, but instead are are based primarily on manipulating, avoiding, or sometimes even neutralizing the Sims themselves. And that that is very much I appreciate because if you're going to have characters that are that complicated, I want them to have a certain degree of personality and flavor. And I think that the extra dimension offered by the way the Sims work is a great way to do that. And for what it's worth, the solo mode is quite interesting as well. I've, I've played it in the past and the way that the way that it activates the Sims is slightly different from the way that it works in the competitive game, but nonetheless relatively easy to apply and I've played a number of different tactical skirmish-type games with AI activation, and Omicron Protocol has a pretty good system for dealing with it. Yeah, it's interesting because you can sort of, because everything you do creates some sort of noise, and so you can sort of math it out and create just enough noise that all of the sims are out of the zone, and so you're not worried about them attacking you that turn. Or best yet, if you're really clever, you can make it so that your noise activates sims, but not in such a way that they can come get you, precisely in the way that they can come get your opponent. It's true. Those those moves, I wasn't able to pull any off, but I really appreciate it when I'm able to do those. Now, part of the blame is me. I, I We bypassed the tutorial. There's a tutorial, which kind of informs one, uh, one of my gripes about Omicron Protocol, is that it is uh, a relic of the battle days of Fantasy Flight's heyday of multiple rulebooks, where none of the rulebooks are comprehensive. And so I never remember where to find things. There's a how-to-play document, which tells you that you start with a certain number of action points, which is not true for the full game. And so I never remember how many action points you actually start with in a full game. Now, does that mean I should only play the tutorial over and over? I don't think so. I don't think that's the proper lesson to take. And the action point system, for what it's worth, is also one of the great things about Omicron Protocol. You have a pool of action points. The answer is eight, by the way. Eight or nine if you're the second player, just for the record. I say this in the hopes that I will remember next time I play Omicron Protocol. And you can allocate those action points as you want. Activate a character, and you want them to be the star of this round. You want to give them half the action points of your entire team. Go to town. Go do that. Have them go and attack a whole bunch of times or do a whole bunch of other special abilities. That's fine. Somebody else doesn't matter. Eh, they don't need to really get any. That's fine, too. And I appreciate that freedom when when it comes to skirmish-type activation games. If there's a neat activation mechanism so they have a certain degree of freedom, I really appreciate that. There are games I'm perfectly willing to play where it's like, all right, on your turn, you do one move and do one action. It's like, that's fine, I guess. But if you can spice it up a little bit, I really appreciate that. Like Flick Fleet, for example. You don't move and do one action. You get to activate two different systems, which could be moving and could be shooting, but doesn't have to be. And the, they have all sorts of different factions as well. And there's a, every faction has its own sort of like clan ability, which is kind of interesting. There's, that doesn't, is not really prevalent in most skirmish type games. Yes. Uh, Omicron Protocol 
for good and ill, I think, and I really think that this is just one of its strengths, also one of its weaknesses, never loses an opportunity to give special abilities to a unit. And if you're tired of generic units, Omicron Protocol could be what you're looking for. I remember uh, anybody who plays tabletop miniatures game, this is this is kind of sort of the problem that Malifaux 1st and 2nd edition had. You'd look at a given unit like a given grunt, just a standard grunt unit in Malifaux, and it's like, okay, this is a line trooper. Here are its 12 abilities. It's like, uh, all, all right. Number one, that's awesome, but number two, I'm never going to be able to do all this properly. And that's kind of where I'm sitting with Omicron Protocol. I'm very happy to play it. It's great. As you say, it gets a lot of things right. And I've just accepted the fact, again, having been trained in Malifaux, I just accept the fact that at the end of the game, I might be rereading a character card. It's like, oh, I really should have activated that. <laughs> oh, I take one less damage in that context. Oh, oh well, maybe next time. As you say, there are lots of different factions. There are two in the base box. There are two more in Up to No Good, which is a great name for an expansion. Those are the ones we got in the review copy. The Critical Condition expansions I actually pledged for on crowdfunding myself, which is an indication that we enjoyed the system. You know, if we get a review copy and then I throw more money at the product, that's an indication that we like what's going on. And the Critical Condition expansion were just two very small expansions, a single unit that can be used by a couple of different factions. One of them is a cybernetic Komodo dragon. And when the world offers you the possibility of a cybernetic Komodo dragon, you say yes. It's so true. So that's Omnicron Protocol. Close. Omnicron Close. Omicron? Also close. <laughs> that works. Omicron. By Dead Alive Games? The same people did Lunar Rush. I don't know if there are two ends of a spectrum or what, but those are two very interesting entrants at a burgeoning publication company. Now, a lot of games I say I want to get back to. Lunar Rush is a game I desperately want to get back on the table. Sure. I really much enjoy it. Yeah, I, I'll look. I'll, I'll happily spend the 45 minutes to get Lunar Rush back to the table. <laughs> it was it, it, it? It's... Not my preferred version of Pick Up and Deliver, but uh, oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. it's prefer Pick Up and Deliver and that kind of uh, throughput concerns are not my preferred style of game, but Lunar Rush does it in a very unique way. That's what so. I mean, yeah. I'm not saying it's, you know, the greatest game, but it's it does cube pushing in a very interesting way. Yes. Yeah. And if you're going to do a cube, cube pusher, it has the same sort of temporal approach of things like Furnace, which is like, let's get, we'll get in and out in about 30 to 45 minutes, which is the way to do it. Just so. After about, you know, 90 minutes of cube pushing, unless there's something really clever uh, keeping it together, like in Sidereal Confluence, I'm like, okay, fine. I turn the three red cubes into two blue cubes, and then I turn the two blue cubes into points. Sorry, that was my less than enthusiastic voice. Was it? Yeah. Oh. Just, just to be perfect. Oh, okay. Anyway, that was Omicron Protocol. <laughs> Glad you enjoyed it, Walker. It is one of my preferred boxed skirmish games. We played Among Cultists, a social deduction thriller. This is also a review copy we got from the publisher. This is from Godot Games. My previous experience with Godot Games was Human Punishment 2.0, which frustrated me because it was less a social deduction game in my experience, in my impression. Then it was uh, an action card take that game with a sort of a vague social deduction pasted on, on top. Among Cultists is a big box social deduction game, which is not terribly common. And it seeks to be a board game implementation very explicitly of Among Us, the PC slash Android game uh, that many people became obsessed with during the days of the pandemic and that Benoit Blanc is incapable of playing correctly, whether he's in the tub or not. And Among Us is, I mean, I played Among Us. I didn't, I didn't get obsessed with it the same way that, that other people did. And there were a number of attempts, I remember, of fan-made versions of Among Us. And one of the difficulties is Among Us works as a computer game because nobody really knows where you are at a given time. 
And where people are is one of the key things about deduction. And it's like, how do you do that in a board game? Well, some people try to do it with hidden movement. Among, among cultists, doesn't do it with hidden movement. Everyone's placement is known publicly. What they do, however, is thematically confusing, but mechanically satisfying. And that is, you don't know when you're dead. True. But the other thing that, that you can do with a computer game is you can run multiple games very quickly. Reset, yes, go again. Reset, that is true. go again. That is true. Not so much with Among Cultists. Okay. So you felt it drag? A little bit. Really? Just for the type of game it is. It's, it, I have to... Per, this is not my type of game. Yes. This, this not perfect information type thing is just not my thing. I prefer more of the Mysterium... Uh, you know, uh, Tokyo type sort of here's sort of inferences on, on what you're trying to get to and sort of like work together. And like the killer in Deception Hong Kong, you know, he's not going to take players out of the game. They, they, they're not going to take, uh, players out of the game. They're just there to, you know, mess it up a little bit type thing. Huh. Interesting. Because Among Cultists also has the potentially thematically problematic aspect that ghosts still get to play. They get to vote. Uh, this is this is a literal plutocracy, as in the dead get to vote. Or perhaps necrocracy. I'm not really sure which of the two is the accepted parlance, because plutocracy typically means rule by the rich. But setting all that aside. And we had somebody get killed explicitly because we uh, <clears throat> possibly someone thought that they were untrustworthy in the... Uh, someone certainly not me. I no, would never do such a thing. Yeah, no one tried to talk talk anyone out of it. Either. I would never organize a mob and ignore Walker's advice and murder someone because I thought they looked shifty. That is not something I would do, and sounds very much unlikely. I mean, how dare you imply otherwise? It never happened. Yeah, no, but I, I I'm surprised by your specific stated concerns. Like, if if you don't want social deduction games to last past a certain length, that's fine. That's just purely a matter of preference. I don't think that anyone was sidelined because the the temp. I was actually quite pleased with the overall arc of the session. I at the the during the very early turns, I was like, I don't know how this is going to develop. But sure enough, when the mid-game rolled around, as we got to the end game, things were building to a head because the victory conditions of the of of the good guys were just within reach. But we knew that whoever the bad guy was was doing a pretty good job of getting in our way, and or we weren't exactly sure how far they'd gotten in terms of their murder quota. And that tension drove a lot of both the suspicion and the actions. And I thought it was very, very good at maintaining interest over the the 90-minute playtime. But you disagree. It's long. (laughs) No, it's just, it's because you're not really doing much. Like you said, you're you're going to rooms, you get some books. I don't think there's a chance that one person is going to be able to track down exactly who the killer is. So, therefore, they're going to have partial information and they're going to have to try to either convince the other people. And then even in our game where... But but that's always true. Like, that's true of Deception Murder in Hong Kong. Like, I I, I don't... But nobody... But nobody what? But, I mean, it doesn't last that long. Sure. Okay, fair enough. I see. It's the uncertainty coupled with the length that, that, yeah. that you And then in to. our game, it didn't really matter because it had the Merlin rule where, and and the, the killer just named a person and, and all what we did for that 90 minutes didn't mean anything because he get, just happened to guess right. <sighs> I don't agree with your gloss on the fact that it, that it made things irrelevant. I don't like 
that it can lead to the possibility of a, of a blind guess being successful. But the whole Merlin rule, we're, we're, talk, we're, we're calling it the Merlin rule because that's how Merlin works in the Resistance Avalon. All things being equal, I agree with you, between the Resistance normal, original, the, the Resistance Simpliciter, and the Resistance Avalon, I'll take the Resistance Simpliciter 10 times out of 10. Precisely because it it leads to a certain degree of randomness in the worst case scenario. I, I can see the whole reason behind the Merlin thing because one person knows it is optional. I should they stress. they know who the killer is. Yes, and if they emphasize that too much, then obviously they're going to give it away. In our case, the killer said he just made a random guess. Yes, and he just happened to guess right. Yes, and that that is when it is not good. People do enjoy this added level of, of sophistication. A lot of people... So look, there are a lot of different uh, uh, ways that people like to approach social deduction games. And to its credit, Among Cultists gives people a certain degree of options. There's some people who refuse to play social deduction games, whether it's Werewolf or the Resistance, unless there's like a list of special roles as long as you're armed. If you want to play Among Cultists that way, you can play Among Cultists that way. If instead, like me, you want to be more of a quote-unquote purist, you don't have to play with any special roles in Among Cultists. Now, at that point, it's still not going to be as deterministic and as much of a logic puzzle as it would be in the resistance, because you still have to be engaged in a certain amount of inference. But I, I just say, I just have to say, in terms of the arc, in terms of bearing its weight, in terms of bearing its rules grit, which is non-trivial, especially in light of the rulebook, which is regrettable, I think, in a lot of ways, I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed Among Cultists. That having been said, unlike you, I very much enjoy social deduction games. I, I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it. It was a fun experience. I I'm definitely wouldn't mind trying it again. And I think it would, it would go a lot quicker now that we yes. knew how to play. Yes. That being said, the setup is semi-egregious. Yes. But, but I am hopeful. I'm curious and hopeful and perhaps slightly optimistic that now that I actually know what's going on, the rulebook does a very bad job of giving you a sort of overall view about how the setup works, why you're doing the setup the way that you're doing it, and in terms of the overall card flow once the game actually starts. Everything's there. There's no summary of the available actions you can do, which is awful, uh, but it, it's hard to internalize. And so my rules explanation took far longer than it should, and the setup was very, very involved. I don't know, and I think I might have an opportunity in the near future to see how quick I can get it and how I can communicate it to a new group of people. I'm also curious about the expansions, and here's why. There are two expansions that are available at present that change the main board. It's not a sideboard. It's not another group of other things that are going on. Although you can do it, there are little teeny modules involved that you can in inject if you want. But it's just, here's a new board with, with a new layout. And... Is it a beach house? <laughs> no, it's not the beach episode, unfortunately. Oh. I'm sorry, he seems so disappointed. No, there's a mine and there's another locale. And that I think that's a good approach as far as expansions go to a, to, to a game like this. At any rate, Among Cultists, I think, did a reasonably good job of inducing some of the same paranoia that Among Us did. It's like, why are you going there? Why are you following me? Why are you ending up in the same space as I am? No, 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 no. Someone else come join us. We need a witness. <laughs> Things like that. And it did, it had the mechanical setup induced the kind of paranoia, suspicion, and trade-offs that are involved in social direction in a way that I like. Is it more random than the resistance? Absolutely. But a lot of people don't like how deterministic and therefore stress-inducing the resistance can be. But I think, yeah, again, with five players, which is the player count we had, I would not include the Merlin role again for precisely the concerns you have. And also, I discovered uh, that 
Huey's objection to that structure, as well as yours, is, if anything, stronger than mine. So, a worthy experiment, but one perhaps best not repeated. The seer, specifically, not among cultists. So that is Among Cultists, a social deduction thriller by Stefan Godot at Godot Games in 2023. I made an, um, a waiting for Godot joke a couple weeks ago in Pledge of Indifference that has uh, completed my requirement for this quarter, and so I will not be making another one. If you want to hear me make another Godot joke, you'll have to wait for it. Please no. Did you see what I did there? Yeah, I did. Did, did, you, did you get that? Those are the games we played last week. Now for a quick break while we pay some bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and Luxuriating in the One and Only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices. Phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. And we're back. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. We like going games. We like dexterity games. There's a game called Rafter 5, Mark, where you put... Rafter? Rafter? One one who rafts. One who rafts, it is. It's not not ceiling. It it (laughs) It is definitely a raft. You put the bottom of the box down, and then you lay all these planks across it, and then you start putting... You know, different sized meeples and squares and cubes and I'm there. different stuff. Exactly. <laughs> you, I just had to see the picture and it's like, yep, yeah, click, 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 click. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it'll be out soon enough. This is Rafter 5 designed by Masahito and Jun Sake. Coming out by Oink Games. 
This is a repeat from Pledge of Indifference, but we received a review copy of Wizards of the Grimoire some months ago, or as we affectionately refer to it here in Survey Wrong by Gamesland, Bookie Bookie Pew Pew. And it is a two-player dueling game that has a, a raft of unique spells, and it is about building your engine really quickly and depleting the energy of your opposing character. It was an unexpected joy, and we're big fans of Wizards of the Grimoire. And it is a local Canadian project, so, you know, insert patriotic uh, filler here. This is our CanCon, so if anyone from the CRTC is listening, this is our yeah. Canadian can content regulation. Like, full. Yeah. Like, we couldn't pack any more Canadian content in this. I've already said we only hire Canadian Gibbons. There's at least six beavers on the floor here. <laughs> Now there's going to be an expansion. This is an expandalone. So a, st- an ex- a standalone expansion is up on Kickstarter now. It's called Wizards of the Grimoire Shifting Sands. Now, and I just want to issue a special public service announcement for Americans who might be experiencing sticker shock. Your mighty greenback makes it so that the listed price is way lower for you. <laughs> Don't get confused. And so it remains a cheap and cheerful game, and I'm very optimistic about the mechanical innovations of Shifting Sand, in that it will encourage you to cycle your engine more and have to adapt to changing circumstances. And so that is uh, definitely something I'm going to be pledging for. That is Wizards of the Grimoire Shifting Sands on crowdfunding now. That is the news, and why it doesn't matter. Now onto our main review, Voidfall. Voidfall was designed by Nigel Buckle and David Tsurtse. They are the design duo who put out Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. Very much appreciated civilization-themed deck builder put out by Osprey Games. And this is a... Well, Big Box is one way to put it. This is the latest Big Box released by Mind Clash Games. They of the incredibly expensive, sprawling, elaborate, many expansions in one heavy Euro uh, design uh, company. David Tertze, independent of Nigel Buckle, has designed a great many games, among them Anachrony for Voidfall Games as well, and as well has lent his name, and this is the polite way of saying taking credit for other people's work for a large number of solo designs because he has a studio of a variety of people working under him whom he has only started lately to credit on design work. Anyway, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Voidfall? Like a spaceship gliding through space, Voidfall slides down an edge with 4X, tech trees, plastic behemoths on one side, and elegant, fast-moving, intertwining mechanism euros on the other. Blah, 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 Mark. There is (laughs) alien races. They were corrupted, right? They spread out and helped people. Yeah. And then they were corrupted with Voidborn and Voidborn came out. And now everyone's against the Voidborn. Pew, pew, pew. So. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Mostly mostly what you're doing in Voidfall is that you have a hand of cards and a sort of event card will be revealed at the beginning of every turn. It'll tell you how many of those cards you get to play for that round. And you only get three rounds in order to get the highest score you possibly can through, you know, moving through the planets, getting techs, uh, conserving your resources. So much thing, so many things to do. Voidfall. So Voidfall is very much a sort of build-your-own-recipe Euro. We talk about recipe fulfillment a lot in terms of Euro games. 
And to a certain extent, I think recipe fulfillment has become very much before it like tableau building or worker placement. It can just be a lazy way to go do victory conditions. Like, oh, all right, so I have this 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 euro that generates resources. Okay, so how, what's the scoring mechanism? I don't know. Let's just have a tableau of things that you can cash in by by cashing in a variety of cubes or widgets or or whatnot. In Voidfall, the bulk of your points are going to come from you buying these cards, which are themselves victory conditions, and then playing them under certain conditions, and then just having then on your board your own set of things you need to fulfill. And in so doing, that is a way to whittle down the vast ocean of possible outcomes and things that you can emphasize. Whether it's resources, certain map presence, various different kinds of map presence, various kinds of economic production, various kinds of economic stockpile, whether you're racing up the tracks, whether you're doing this, that, or the other. It's all there, but the way to focus your attention, the way to engage in a heuristic so that you're not drowning in the sea of possibilities, to give you some degree of guidance, some degree of focus, is done through these agenda cards. That is, of course, if you are keeping your eye on the prize, which Voidfall does a reasonably good job of, of, of keeping you focused. And they do a great job because... You can't just focus on one type of agenda and get multiple copies of it because you can only have one copy. So you can't just, you know, double dip into like right. one aspect of the game. Yeah, you can't just get a series of overlapping military agendas and romp all over the map and laugh at everybody. You can only have one kind of each, and there are four different suits, and naturally they reward different kinds of things. Now you can there's a certain generalization printed on the display about what kind of agendas reward various kinds of things. There's also the generalization of what bonus actions the agendas give you. There's sort of a penalty to these agendas as well. You can't ah, just yes. simply, you know, grab a bunch of them and start getting points right away because at the end of every round, there's an upkeep phase where you have to pay a bunch of food for all sorts of different reasons. And one of them is how many agendas you have out. So you're sort of limited and sort of have to make sure you balance everything out. Absolutely. And balance is indeed the name of the game because this is, I think, one of the key benefits and under an underexamined benefit of Voidfall. That is that the round structure when playing competitively, more on that later, is remarkably sparse given how much game there is. Very often in Euro games, we've become accustomed to a 53-step setup process. Don't worry, Voidfall has that in spades, probably longer than in many Euro games you've seen. And then we're, we're familiar with some sort of upkeep phase that consists of 12, 6, 23 steps, what have you. Voidfall loads almost everything into player actions. There's no step where everyone drafts an agenda. You have to take an action to do that. There's no step where everyone produces. That's an action you do. If you're drowning in food and you you have all the food you're going to need for the rest of the game, go ahead. Never produce food again. You're going to be able to use that in terms of efficiency. The food's not going to spoil. You're going to be paying your upkeep forever. That's fine. You're done. You don't have to worry about food anymore. You're good. And that, I think, is remarkable, both in terms of the overall pacing of Voidfall and in terms of the pressures and freedom that you have in terms of how to satisfy your goals and when. There have been occasions, and this is not true of many other Euros where you have to, where there's food upkeep, where I've just looked at it and said, nah, I'm going to starve. <laughs> Forget yep. it. I just can't. Nope. <laughs> Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Now, does that mean that the food pressures are non-existent? No. It's just it's it's one thing to keep in mind among many, but it is yet another way in which the game is run by player agency, not by a cumbersome mechanistic overall superstructure. Allow me to stress, 
when playing competitively. More on that later. I'm just going to cover this now, too. Unfortunately, some things come in like double layers, right? You can't just take an agenda and suddenly you can start fulfilling it. You have to spend an action to to acquire the agenda, and then it sort of comes in your hand, and it'll tell you what other cards you have to play in order to put that agenda out. So that's – I'm not saying it's – you know, it might be a card you're going to play anyway, but it's another two-step sort of process. And there's a lot of these in this game where you can't just do something. You have to sort of set it up, which is, you know, a normal Euro thing, but it just sort of like – is a, is a lot. I hear you. I am willing to forgive it in the case of agendas, because I agree with you, it is a lot, especially insofar as you have to sort of cross-reference what actions allow you to put out agendas. And it, it's not it's not covered as cleanly as your other trade-offs. Like, if, if you know that you need to put out a military installation, you can just look at your hand of cards and very quickly skim and see which ones let you put out a military installation. If you know that you want to draft an agenda that you will then be able to play later on this cycle, because there's only three cycles, it is a little bit more difficult. You have to do a little bit more correlation. That having been said, putting out agendas is really important and you're not going to be doing it a whole heck of a lot. And so I'm willing to give it a bit of a pass, but I can absolutely see where you're coming from. The rest of it is, I think, just standard Euro kind of management trade-offs because, you know, military strength effectively is a is a kind of a two or three step process, depending on how you want to slice it. Economic production is basically the same. You put out the production buildings and then you have to run them. It's a separate step. Most of the time, I think it's relatively straightforward and just leads to more grist for timing considerations. I will grant you for, for, for putting out the agendas, it's a little cumbersome. And sometimes it can be a benefit because when you play these cards, they come with three actions and sometimes, and you only allowed to use two of them. And so early in the turn, you might grab an agenda and you specifically took it because every time you put an agenda out, it had, lets you do an action sometimes. Bonus action. Yeah. Bonus action. And sometimes you either a need that extra bonus action because yep. you, you can only do two of them and now this will give you the third or you've already played that particular action and now you're going to be able to do it again at the end of the turn. So sometimes you can look through the agendas and say, I just need to do, I don't care what the, the agenda is. Right. I really need to do that action. Yeah. So you draft it and then later in the turn you get to do that action again. Yes. Which again emphasizes the centrality of agendas and, and it helps, again, in games with this many moving parts as Voidfall has, it is helpful to be able to say, this is where you're going to get your points. As opposed to uh, you know, does it end up having as many elements as a lot of point salad euros? Absolutely, 100%. But it doesn't feel as arbitrary or as aimless because this is, again, the recipe that you made. You can feel a sense of ownership. It's a sense of personal responsibility. It's it's pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. That's what Voidfall believes in. Voidfall doesn't believe in handouts. Uh, I, I seem to have gotten lost the, the plot. Uh <laughs> And so it 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 really does feel like a, a more a greater sense of focus in a universe of a million different possibilities. Is now the time to talk about icons? I was just say iconography. Yes. Go what ahead. what is your impression of the iconography in Voidfall Walker? I think there's a lot of it, but I think it is just very good. As we saw in the teach, right? You, as as soon as you got over a few of the icons, as we're playing out the cards and what they all do, I think we got through like two of them, and then. I did the next six automatically by just looking yep. at the pictures. And it's really willing to be redundant. I really appreciate that. For example, just a, a, a quick example. In order to score something, in order for something in a sector to score, say you need a certain amount of economic production or a certain amount of population or a certain amount of military strength in a given sector, 
it has to not be corrupted. It has to be free of the corruption. Sometimes this is extra burdensome to get rid of the corruption. It's it's part of that two or three step process that I will, I'm willing to defend as part of the the, the glorious trade offs of a of a dense euro. But every time there's a scoring card, every time there's an event that keys off of of having these assets, it repeats the not corrupted icon every single time. And they went to the effort of making sure that you didn't have to take pretty much anything as a given. It's repeated there each and every time. And I really approve of that. And even though it's repeated, you still for, I, we, you don't forget. But the rest of the table. <laughs> well, again, but that, that just emphasizes the importance. Like, yeah, in, that's what I mean. With a game with as many details as Voidfall, we have seen lots of games. So for even just let, let's just compare a simpler game that we also enjoyed this week, Among Cultists, right? Vastly fewer details in the universe of, of that game. A tiny fraction of the amount of complexity and moving parts that exist in Voidfall. But there's no summary of available actions in Among Cultists, and so we are constantly referring back to the rulebook. I refer back to a rulebook of Voidfall hardly ever, because it's all covered in a very nice structure that basically explains itself. And that's a minor triumph, considering how much is going on. And what you're left with, therefore, is again, it's just always thrown back to the player in terms of we are going to put the pressure on you to figure out what you want to do, not how you're going to grapple with the systems. It is one of those things where I almost feel, and this is incredibly high praise, we're both big fans of Splatter, we're both big fans of Mind Clash. They have very different design philosophies, even though they both design sort of heavy Euro games. I think Voidfall manages to capture some of the best of what Mind Clash does, as well as some of the straightforwardness and some of the pointed trade-offs of a splatter design. This is a bit of a reach, and it's certainly more complicated and more baroque than a splatter design, but I feel that same focus, even when I don't feel it in other Mind Clash games that are people like, like Cerebria or Anachrony. Agreed. So let's get into some of the other parts of it. So the first, usually with the very first thing happens, let's go right to the very beginning. The very beginning? Set up. So there was this big bang. Set up and tear down is quite a beast. This all all depends on. Really painful. This could also depend on what kind of version you have. Because because it's a Kickstarter, you could have all sorts of different components and whatever. But even I think no matter what version you have, it's pretty brutal. Yes. Uh, What I'm going to. I'll I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to print up a second copy of the scenario book. Not all the scenario book, but of the scenarios. Very much like I did with the glossary. So the glossary, again redundant is all get out and therefore super helpful. Never takes anything for granted with the exception of ship abilities, minor gripe. That's at the back of the rule book for some reason, but it always spells everything out. So I printed out a second copy of the glossary. So there are two that are, that are going around. So multiple people can check the glossary at any given time. Invaluable. Hardly ever look at the rule book, check the glossary all the time, but that's fine. I'm going to do the same thing with the scenario book so that more than one person can set up the game at the same damn time because a given hex in a setup for the scenarios of Voidfall might have like seven or eight different elements in it. And if only one copy of the book exists, only one person can be doing it because it's just too small. You can't put it in the middle of the table. First of all, there's no room on the table. The table's, the table's already covered. Voidfall's taken all of it, Is all it- the table. It is Voidfall now. There is no table, merely Voidfall. And so in order to have someone else be able to help me set the thing up, I'm absolutely going to print another copy of all the scenarios. So be like, here, you do this part. All right, so now that everything is set up, 
you now get to choose a faction. And this is where it gets even more interesting. Because when you once you choose from the like 14 different factions that there are, uh, they all most of them have special abilities. They all some of them also have unique home tiles. Uh they have they might have some focus cards, like unique focus focus Unique cards action cards that nobody else them, has. So yeah. You switch them out with your main deck. They have each faction has two sort of main tech trees that you can go down. So you choose one, and not only does that tell you what tech you're going to get at the beginning of the game, you also it'll also tell you what resources you're going to get at the game, and your uh, starting military disposition, just so and how many the population, all of that stuff, and every faction. There's these three civilization tracks that you're moving up for during the whole game that give you all sorts of different benefits and every faction's tracks are different. And this leads to an area where Voidfall, I think, is not quite as good as a lot of its 4X competitors. And this is one of the ways in which I think Voidfall isn't really giving you the same feel as a 4X game. It's close, but I don't think it's all the way. But there is a shocking amount of flavor in what goes on in a lot of what Voidfall is, despite the fact that it, at its core, it's it's 100% Euro through and through. So, for example, one of the factions, the one I, I, I played today, as, a, as in point of fact, does not have a Conquest card. It instead has a card that you replace, replace it with called Uplift. The top action, though, of Uplift is Bombardment, and it allows you to invade. This is telling you... No, seriously. I, I spent a lot of time thinking about this. It was so... It, and it was sufficiently impactful that Huey, who played them like a week and a half ago, was like, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Uplift with Bombardment. And it's telling a little bit of a story there. Like, that that's telling you something. No, no, no. We don't do Conquest. We Uplift. It's like, so why are you raining down death from orbit? No, no, no. This is just part of the Uplift process. We're uplifting their souls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, there, you know, again, I'm not going to say that this is a, as thematic as even a game of Eclipse, I think, which is still pretty Euro. Like, you're not going to be uh, outfitting your specific little toys of, of it. Like, this is my fighter. It's bespoke. It's got the technology that I found at this weird planet and the strange generator that I researched. Eh, it's not going to get to that level. At the end of the day, it's it's it feels like a management game through and through. But for a management game, it's got a lot of flavor. For a Forex game, not a whole lot. But for a management game, super flavorful. Agreed. Let's go back to the sort of the planetary sectors that you were talking about, because like you said, there could be up to seven different uh, items on them. They are double layered, which is great because... In the deluxe version. In the, in the deluxe in, version. In the Kickstarter version. Because you're putting in your sort of space stations and you're also putting in these guilds. Production we'll talk, guilds, yeah. Production, which we'll talk about later. And because and the population die. And because they're layered, uh, the the stands, and even, even if you don't have stands, the, to- the ship tokens will lie flat, so they yeah. won't be teetering or, you know, get in the way. And honestly, that that I think is the best argument in favor of the deluxe version. I think the retail version, I've seen the retail version. The retail version is still the same game and is no slouch in the visuals department. But just having that, uh, that dual, the dual layer sector tiles, just meaning that nothing is going to slide off. That alone, I think, is is reason to justify it. Not necessarily the outlandish price and consumption of materials, but it makes me glad that I have it. I would happily play on the retail version, 
but I'm glad I made the decision I did because there are so many elements on a sector tile and knowing that they're not going to fly off and, and, and get shoved out. It's like, wait, where, where's, where was that farm? Sorry, I was moving a fleet. I knocked over a farm. Where does it belong? That is uh, peace of mind. Yes, because every sector has a limit of how many guilds are allowed to be slotted in and depending on you know how many you have there, it could lead to that, that feeding yep. cost. Of Additional upkeep. Additional well, upkeep. that's what arc ships are for, Walker. <laughs> it's just so you can overload a given sector. Anyway. Yeah, that what, what you're saying there leads back to the technologies because what Tech, what races people play or, or factions people take. They're all will, technically human. Will dictate the technology for everyone for the whole game. Yep. And it will tell us what kinds of ships that we're going to be able to have. Because you always get Corvettes no matter what. And then just depending on what factions are in play, you're going to all sorts of different variety of ships. So you might not get anything but Corvettes because no one's yep. taken the factions that have fancy but ships. But these might be Corvettes with advanced targeting and shields. It's true. <laughs> Or you can play with the carriers and the destroyers and the dreadnoughts and, and, and so forth. And on a side note, you might have some, uh, I, I keep calling them city-states, but they're lost. They're fallen houses. Fallen houses. So in a lot of the scenarios, you're going to have fallen houses, which are sort of like city-states in, in civilization. And when you take them over, you can get their technology. So you might get ships that way. And well. they determine what technologies are available overall. So the overall technology field is not determined by a blind draw or random influx or a deterministic deck, just to mention Eclipse and Twilight Imperium as examples, but instead is a function of the technologies selected by the players as a function of their starting factions and eight that are driven by the available pool of fallen houses. And this this leads to a very different tenor as opposed to the overall game, each individual session of Voidfall, which leads me, I think, to discussion of the scenarios. You, you pick a given scenario, and there's a fixed map setup that is varied a little bit by the starting faction elements. And it's going to tell you, these are the suggested factions from the players from which to choose. You can vary if you want to. And these are the suggested fallen houses. You can vary that if you want as well. It will also give you a suggested set of event cards, and there's some randomness there. But I've got to say, when I initially saw this setup, and when I internalized how Euro the gameplay was, I was a little bit skeptical about how much the different scenarios were going to feel next to each other. What was your overall impression about the, the different scenarios? I think it was very much, they were very much different, because they all had sort of like a conflict rating, right? How much interaction there was going to be, and that really was dictated by how much... Uh, corruption was in the way between the players and or if you ever played Forbidden Stars, you'll know that there's all there's these warp gates all over the place or or static charges that move around and block off different parts of the map. And this is prevalent in Voidfall as well, except they just don't move. So it just sort of like helps manipulate the map around and, and close off areas and create choke points and and sometimes this is very relevant because because at the end of every turn uh, the Voidfall attack, and they're only going to attack if they're adjacent to some of your sectors, so you can sort of, you know, bust out early, so there's only that one sector that's adjacent, so you can keep that in defense, and then not have to worry about getting, you know, you know, destroyed in the back. Yes. You've complained in the past, or at least observed, that you felt that it wasn't, that that Voidfall, that Voidborn counterattack wasn't sufficiently consequential. Do you still feel that way? No, I, I, I understand why it's there. I just, I just, it just, the time it takes to go through it when, when it's obvious that we've all, you know what I mean? Really? I, yeah, it's just. 
I think it, I'll repeat what I said before. I think it plays a substantial role in my decision making in terms of how I set up my sector defenses. And then at the end of the round, when it's time to execute it, at that point, it's 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 anticlimax. We've already done the work. Yes, exactly. And so the actual resolution is, uh, okay, you're fine because it gets blown out of the sky. I'm fine because they show up and I kill them. You're fine because you actually don't suffer an attack. And that part, you know, it. That amount of time is practically nothing, but it nonetheless influences the decisions I've made up to that point. Maybe it's not the time. It's just so much that nothing ever happens. So <laughs> Sure. It's, it's kind of like a duck. All the action's happening underwater. It's true. I want to hit the galactic event cards because I did sort of talk about them. So after you pick your faction and, you're, and you get going, the first thing you do is flip over this galactic event card. And it's going to give you a few goals. It might give you a few benefits right off the beginning. Or burdens. Or burdens. But the the part I find most interesting is what I alluded to earlier is it's going to tell you how many cards you get to play that turn. And I think that's very interesting because sometimes you get to six or four or five. You just never know how many actions you're going to get. And I think that's sort of, that adds a lot of tension to every turn. Sure. It's part of the way in which the different scenarios in Voidfall end up producing different kinds of games. We've had scenarios where we all felt rich and it was a question of running up the scoreboard. We've also had scenarios where we all felt really poor and we felt like we couldn't get done what we had gotten done in the previous game. And I really think it helps give a sense of variety. It, it is shocking how much difference you get out of the different scenarios based on what seems like so much small input variance. Agreed. Let's just cover combat is very deterministic. There's no dice. It tricks you. You know, you look at the component list. You'll see, <laughs> you'll see lots of dice. Oh, yeah. Tons of dice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never roll them. Yeah, they're just trackers. Yeah. So combat is very deterministic. You know if you're going to win or not. You just go in and you go through the motions and say, yeah, shields, torpedoes, I lose one, I win, move yep. on. And yeah. Which is great, especially in that in in a game of this length and how much combat could bog it down. I'm yeah. so glad that this is the type of combat. That... I have seen comments from a variety of people that say that it is too hard to figure out what the results of combat are going to be. And I do not understand what they're talking about. I find it very, very difficult to understand. Like, there's an app that you can use to resolve combats, but the input involved in determine in just like, I have this technology and I have uh, scroll, 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 one carrier, scroll, 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 scroll. Like, yeah. What the heck? I did go through that. Like, because I loaded in doing the research for this, I downloaded like all the rule books yeah, and yeah. then I scroll down a bit and it says, Oh, there's an app and I click on it and I go, what is this? Well, this is a combat app. And I like, I go, what, what on earth would you do? Why would you? I don't. It's also baffling because why would you start an attack without knowing what the results would be? So I have to assume it's what people would try on spec to figure out what would happen if they attacked. I have never had any difficulty. I, 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 I sincerely don't know why people like where I have a whole bunch of technologies and the victim has a whole bunch of technology. I think we only ever had one attack where someone was like, I think I'm going to win, but I'm not exactly sure what the end state's going to look like. Here we go. I think that's as, once. In all the games we've had. Yeah, and because they have these really uh, useful overlays, depending on the what ships are in the game, you bring those overlays over, yep. it, it shows you what happens in every stage of the combat, so you can just look over there, it's like, oh, okay, my shields will stop that, I'll do this, the torpedoes will kill them both, yep. I have initiative, that's how it's going to go, Yeah, and we're done. And that's a complicated example. Exactly, <laughs> oh, yeah, just so. Yeah, I... I have to, I mean, I just assume it's sincere. What's easy for some people is, is hard for others and vice versa. This is not in any way a reflection of intellectual capability. It's just the players that we've played with have not had a difficulty internalizing the combat system, whereas other people seem to. So for what it's worth. All right. So there's only three rounds of the game and the, the 
the average number of cards you're going to play is five. So you're going to play 15 cards and the game will be over. And then the last thing I have here before we go about the different uh, versions is the components. We've sort of talked about some of it, but I like to talk about uh, the resources. Instead of having all these tokens and whatever, you have this like one sort of cylinder of all these dials that keeps track of yeah, ten dials on a on a on a ten, big plank. Yeah, ten dials. It tells you what your sort of uh, output is, or uh, what's the the proper word for it, output. And then when you run those, it tracks the actual resources as well. So it's all on this one little card. So it's not like all these tokens all over the place. Love that. And yeah, the double layered sector boards which I already talked about, and the ships are very interesting looking. They have two different colors of plastic for the Voidborn ships, and yeah. Again, in the in the deluxe, super expensive version, more money than cents. In the retail version, they are uh, just tokens where you put cubes on them to represent their strength. And uh, to be frank, the tokens with cubes are probably more functional than the stands with cubes. Uh, but uh, I am not a smart man. I'm not wise with money. And when someone says plastic spaceships, I enter into a fugue. Uh, where I lose all self control, so it's like it's like you know when you get that concussion, there's that yes. explosion, and then and then everything goes fuzzy, yeah. and then in the background all here is pew pew. <laughs> pew pew. What's that, God? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> all right, you worship blaster sounds? Yes, it's my religion. So there's different ways you can play. There is competitive, which are there are multiple versions of that. It'll, it'll give you like a number and you can say, I want this degree. From one to four, yeah. This, How much this degree, degree of, of, of conflict. Yeah. Conflict. So uh, let's let's talk about that first. We've tried, uh, we've actually played scenarios with all four of the ratings. And at level one, it's more or less impossible to fight another player. You, even if you r- tried real hard to do nothing but f- fight another player, you might, by the end of the game, have a potential fight or two. And that's if you're focused on just doing that. I don't care about winning. I just really want to get there. And then there's f- level four where it's like after your first conquest, you're right at the, you're right next door to each other. And so anybody can attack anybody more or less at that point. What was your impression of, of those parameters in Voidfall Walker? It, well, the, the parameters were fine, but I, I just don't see the reason of attacking other players, especially when there's Voidborn sectors available. Yeah. The benefit of attacking Voidborn is so much better than attacking another player. I don't, unless it's specifically slowing them down somehow. Yes. It's the way the conflict system works is after you've conquered a whole bunch of Voidborn, you become a juicy target because when somebody conquers your sector, they score all of your military trophies effectively. And then you lose a military trophy because it's, because it's been embarrassing. Now, on paper, I really like this because the idea is like you get more points for winning, uh, for, for beating up a big military force. And number two, as somebody suffers military loss, they become less juicy of a target, right? But in practice, what that means, <laughs> first of all, how good a military target somebody is is only determined by how much they beat up the NPCs. So somebody comes and kicks you in the teeth, your incentive to fight back against them is practically nil. Your incentive to go get more points is to just beat up more Voidborn. Oh, great, great. then you're the target again. So there's not an in- interest or incentive to constantly mix it up with each other. This ain't Kemet or Senji uh, people. This is a situation where, oh, as a consequence of your having done real good against the NPCs and left your borders undefended, someone's going to snipe at you. And it's not really in your interest to, t- to attack them back. But then again, it's not really in your interest to go attack more any NPCs anymore. So the high conflict scenarios discourage fighting all around as a consequence of the way they do the incentive structure. It's baffling. 
And there's huge upkeep because leaving a sector after you've conquered it is huge penalties because you lose everything that's there. Yep. The Voidborn instantly come back in and yep. reoccupy it. And, and it's a major roadblock now. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, you could theoretically use it as a sort of defensive bastion, but as I said, there's not really a, a reason for people to come after you again after you've been kicked in the face. When, uh, uh, Voidfall, and we probably this is probably something to, to emphasize throughout, huge, huge multiplayer solitaire vibes. Walker was quite right to praise the fact that the resource tracker is very, very functional, and you don't have to worry about lots of trailing tokens for that. There are lots of trailing tokens of other type, don't worry. But as a consequence... Your neighbor could have the best scientific production and stockpiles in the world, or could be desperately poor and unable to buy even a basic tech. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't he, even really care. Yeah. Is he scoring his agendas? Does he have really cool agendas? How, how do his techs work? <laughs> Why would you care? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it is incredibly multiplayer solitaire. And that is not a feature that I like in general. It's not even a feature that I like in Voidfall. It is purely a function of the quality of that multiplayer solitaire that I enjoy uh, Voidfall as, as much as I do. It is, uh, you know, I would put it in the same broad category, not in terms of design aesthetic, not in terms of mechanics or anything, as a feast for Odin. Do I like how multiplayer solitaire it is? No. Am I willing to forgive it based on the rest of the quality of the game? Yes. And its attempts to not be multiplayer solitaire just in my experience, are some of the least satisfying sessions of Voidfall that I've had. The high-conflict scenarios, the ones where we mixed it up, it didn't real, reveal any strengths. The incentive structures are just all over the place. And there's very, there is very minimal uh, grab for the technologies. A very slight, yeah. And same with the agendas. If there is a particular agenda that you need, you might want to grab it quickly because right. there's one of each and it will, another one will come up, but yeah. it might not... Be, be exactly as well, well suited, exactly, yeah. exactly. Especially then the, like, say, if it was you were playing the co-op mode, which we're just about to talk about. Yes, and it's the person with the lowest score is going to be the the score of the team, and then if that lowest person with the lowest score has a has a really good agenda that they're going to score a lot of points with, and has an action on it they want. And then the person with the highest score comes along, and they take that agenda. That just doesn't seem like teamwork at all. Now, does it? I don't know, Walker. What if the person who took that agenda, who had the highest score, was incredibly physically attractive and desirable to members of all sexes and genders oh, could be, yeah. and has a, a dulcet tone for, for podcasting? That, that, that could be true. I'd like to meet that person. That doesn't sound much like me. He sounds quite wonderful. Yeah. Well, look, <laughs> I, I, will, I will now quote Efka Bladukas, uh, the, the great sage and eminent scholar of No Pun Included. First of all, one aspect of the cooperative mode is that doesn't really lead to good feeling, right? At the end of the game, everyone reveals their score. It's like, okay, you're the weakest among us. We win or lose based on how well you did. Congratulations, loser. Yeah. That's not awesome. You are the weakest link. Yes. You have failed us. Yeah, exactly. You have either. Yeah. You, you, if we, if we lose, it's because of you. That's not, that's not awesome. And then. Voidfall, as we've talked about, is remarkably smooth-flowing, remarkably approachable, and remarkably comprehensible given its weight. And then there's the cooperative version, Oof. which says, hey, you've internalized all these systems. Have three or four more. Hey, that, that round structure that was so breezy and quick and clean? Let's add some upkeep to every single turn. Yeah, but you, you, you said that you've internalized it already. But what if people haven't? 
What if? What if? <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, not, yeah, not, yeah. I don't mean that way. What if it, their group only plays cooperative yes, games? Yes. Or they said, "Oh, it's co-op. Let's try that first. Yeah. And what if that's the first version yeah. they play? Yeah. That would be terrible. Yeah. It's uh, it, it it is not as bad as some of the David Cerce solo designs that I've played. It is the 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 mechanisms introduced in the cooperative slash solo version are much like everything else in Voidfall, individually straightforward. It, it, but oh my goodness. It's, it, it, it took us almost twice as long to play a cooperative game than to, to, to play a, a competitive game. Yeah. Yeah. Even our first competitive game. Yes. Even our first competitive game with the rules explanation and with you starting not having played the tutorial flowed like silk. And the, 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 our, our co- we've tried the co-op version once and the consensus at the table was never again. We... <laughs> Glad we tried it. Glad we tried it. Nope. Will now there will not return. There are some people who love incredibly dense solo games and would love to set up a table of Voidfall and either spend all day on it or whatever. I am not the kind of person who does solo gaming that way. When there's that much setup, when there are those many components to manipulate, I'm going to insist on other hands being around to help me. And I just don't want to have to be able to reach over to the other edge of the board anyway. <laughs> but... It is absolutely the case that even before the pandemic, there was an audience for solo games like this, especially after the pandemic. There is a whole bunch of people who are going to insist on a cooperative mode in a solo, a solo or cooperative mode in every game and might even buy it exclusively for solo. That audience, just so you know, you have to know what you're getting into. I solo war games. I solo consims, but typically of like the two hour or less frequently of the David Thompson variety. I solo tabletop miniatures games frequently of the 45 minutes or less variety. I don't solo three-hour war games. Uh, sorry, three-hour Euros. And even if I did, I wouldn't solo this. And, and Mark, when doing the research for this, uh, I am very sorry that you had to read these rule books because this doubles down on a huge problem. Because they didn't they didn't print a solo book. No. See, they incorporated all the cooperative and solo rules within the main rule book. And the tutorial rules as and well. And it's all mixed together. And they color it's code not, it. It's not good. It's bad. They color code it, but it's still, yeah, it's really bad. Yeah. As good as the glossary is, and I will defend this as possibly the greatest glossary I've ever seen in, in hobby gaming, uh, the rule book, they made a series of editorial decisions. I'm not saying that they had any easy outs, uh, but I definitely th- think they took the wrong editorial decisions. It is the case that there's a, there are four different rule packages of rules. There are the rules, there are the tutorial rules, there are the tutorial rules but not during cycle one, and there are the co-op rules. Actually, sorry, five, and then ones that apply only for competitive. There you go, five sets of rules. And they include them all in the same book. And it, what it serves to do is very much like a badly written rule book, again, like, like Among Cultists, serves to obscure the simple and complicate the approachable. Honestly, it is only because of that that I found the tutorial useful. If the rulebook had just been written in a standard rulebook, here are the rules you need to do for the for the mode you're about to play, I would not have needed a tutorial in order to internalize how everything worked. It, look, they had a series of bad options in front of them, and I, I don't know if the world would have been better if they took one of the other bad options, but quite frankly, given the amount of excellent material in the box, I would have said, look, suck it up, have a couple more rulebooks in there. And then you just have the one document you need for the mode you're playing, and then you're done. Okay. That that would have been my preference. They still could have color coded. They still could have color coded like this is what is different. This is you know these you know note you know we're color coding things that are different for the other modes just so you don't get confused. Ugh. Anyway, 
All of that having been said, right? We're talking about an expensive table hog. It's long, but it's not egregiously long. It's like reliably under three hours when you know what you're doing. Uh, even even for a first time play, if you move quickly, because it 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 it's, it really flows shockingly smoothly, given how dense the uh, voidfall is. Every individual element makes sense. You don't really feel like there are stuff that's there that doesn't belong. And it is not quite a 4X, but it, you know, it gives a little bit of that taste. I really think that this is either my favorite Mind Clash game or possibly uh, second only to Cerebria. I'm not really sure. This is a heavy, long game with about 45 minutes to an hour of setup. And I have always wanted to play it again immediately after finishing it. It has stayed in my game room and we've played it a lot over the course of the past couple of weeks. And that I think is a testament to how much I adore Voidfall. I think it is a stunning achievement. Agreed. Like I said, I think it really cuts down that edge of giving you that feeling of that of of 4x and these giant technology trees and huge plastic and that overall scope of feel but streamlines it into this very interesting euro mechanism game yeah and i can see lots of void fall in the future well that's going to do it for this week thank you very very much for joining us if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at sowronggames.com slash contact. That has all our contact information therein. Sowronggames.com should, of course, be your homepage. It has all kinds of useful information. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. We appreciate your having decided to spend some time with us here at So Very Wrong About Games, and we hope to see you again soon. Please do take care. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.